Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 166th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Peter Malouk. Peter is the founder and president of Creative Planning, an independent RA based in Kansas City that oversees more than $50 billion of assets under management for over 30,000 client families. What's unique about Peter, though, is the way he's been able to build Creative Planning to an incredible milestone of $50 billion of assets under management, nearly from scratch in the past 16 years and without mergers, acquisitions, or outside capital along the way. And why, after building the $50 billion, he's recently decided to begin the process of acquiring outside firms and to take outside equity investment from a private equity firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about Creative Planning's organic growth path over the past 16 years. The way the firm built early on with RIA custodial referrals with a then unique offering of fully customized client portfolios and comprehensive financial planning bundled into a single AUM fee, how the firm's growth engine has shifted increasingly to referrals from existing clients and even direct inbound inquiries as more and more branch locations of creative planning become one of the largest local independent firms in their metropolitan areas across the country and why it takes a very narrow focus on the kind of firms creative planning is willing to acquire to ensure that such acquisitions help and don't hinder its long-term organic growth strategy. We also talk about Peter's perspective on broader industry trends, including why, even with an increasing focus on fee compression and the commoditization of investment management, creative planning remains committed to the AUM model and not charging separately for planning, How the industry's professed talent shortage isn't necessarily a problem for firms with a clearly differentiated value proposition in the marketplace, and why he believes that independent advisory firms may be near a peak in valuation multiples, leading Creative Planning itself to recently sell a minority stake to a PE firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Peter shares what he actually intends to do with the outside capital that Creative Planning raised, and it's not to fund acquisitions, the firm's aggressive growth plan over the next three years, and why even as the leader of a $50 billion RAA, Peter still keeps a base of 100 clients that he sees for the bulk of his time every week and encourages most of his leadership team to keep client-facing roles with a portion of their time as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Peter Malouk. Welcome, Peter Malouk, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Good to be back with you, Michael. It's been a while. It has been a while. I'm I'm excited to have you back on. You had joined us about two years ago now, back in March of 2018. So episode 65, we were just out of the first year of recording the podcast. The firm at the time uh, for you guys, I think, was just closing in on $35 billion, which is still kind of a mind, mind-numbingly large number to me. We are now here two years later. Creative planning is now crossed $50 billion, which is both even more an incredible number. I mean, as far as I know, largest independent wealth management firm in our space. The only real independent RIA that is larger is, is perhaps Fisher Investments at north of $100 billion, but I would really think of them as more of an investment-only shop, not the, the breadth of what creative planning does on the wealth management end. You know, that means you're up almost $15 billion in two years, 
which is incredible in and of itself. And while I know there's been some headlines recently, which I think we'll end up talking about of starting to do some acquisitions with the firm and, and, and selling a stake to an outside private equity firm, you know, the, the story for creative planning, I think has lived kind of under the radar screen for a lot of the industry is almost entirely like zero to 50 billion, all organic growth, barely 17 years, no outside capital leaving, I think everybody scratching their heads of like, how exactly does that work, Peter? <laughs> is that a question or is that a statement? I'm hoping it's a statement. Both, I'm, I'm ready to both, talk about it. <laughs> both. Um, like, yeah, I, I think there is some some sort of head scratching out there of like, there's been such a lurch towards inorganic growth and mergers and acquisitions, which I think for a lot of firms is because they're finding organic growth is getting harder. It's like, oh, and by the way, you like creative picked about fifteen billion in the past two years while while y'all were figuring out why organic growth is hard. Like, w- tell us the story of how exactly you go from zero to fifty billion dollars in just under seventeen years without acquisitions of just growth empowering forward. Like, what does this look like? Well, I would I would say. I'll give you like the from the beginning story, then I'm going to tell you where it comes from and where it doesn't come from, and maybe kind of dispel some, do some myth busting while we're talking here. Because we do get called. I mean, it feels like not a month goes by and a reporter calls with, uh, you know, I heard this, I heard that. And we're constantly dispelling, you know, all these things that they're hearing. And so I'm going to use this as a, a, maybe a way to address some of it up front. So I would say, you know, in the very beginning, there were only a couple people here, you know, uh, 16 years ago, and and a client would come in, and we were growing really fast before there were any you know avenues people know about today. And I remember when I was starting, you know, it was really only in our city, but a lot of people would say as we started to get some attention in Kansas City, oh, that's just you know Peter is an estate attorney, and so it's all coming from there. And then we had. A guy, Bob Pascuzzi, joined us, and he was just amazing at designing and advising on 401ks. And everyone said, well, they're just getting their clients from the, the 401k. And then you know, TD Ameritrade reached out to us and put us on their referral program. And I think that's been you know, very well publicized. I mean, TD Ameritrade was growing extremely rapidly. They were building out this program that had largely money managers. They put us on. We're a, largely a, a customized money manager, which we can talk about a little more that was doing financial planning that was pretty unique on their platform back then. And so we did exceptionally well there. And of course, we've had relationships with Tony. We're on the Schwab program and we get a huge number of referrals from our clients. But from a breakout perspective, this is the question I get the most, less than a third of our clients, less than a third of our assets, I should say, I don't know what the number of clients, but a third of our assets came from the TD Ameritrade referral program, less than a third. If you take that and all of Schwab referrals and all the Tony referrals, you put them together, less than half. The rest is, you know, one client telling another, or they read a book, or they heard us on a podcast, or something else, you know, outside of those things. So, you know, I I would divide it into a couple camps. You can say there's there are one way people grow that you referenced at the top of the podcast is acquisitions. That's obviously a new thing for us. We're just starting to add that to supplement our organic growth. The second would be everything else is organic. But you can take the organic and say, well, what was re- you know, referred to you and divide that out. You still put all that together. It's it's less than half. And so to me, what the, the story is that we've got a people and process and offering that attracts clients. And 
that's what we're relentlessly focused here on here every day is how do we make this more appealing to clients? How do we make our services broader? How do we make them deeper? How do we have better people, more credentialed people, more educated people in front of our clients so that we can deliver them something of value? Because I think it's a highly commoditized space. And so if you want to win, you have to be a little bit better at a lot of things, or you have to be a lot better at one thing. And we're trying to come in and be a lot better at a lot of things. I'm not saying we succeed at all of that, but that's our mindset, is how do we get a lot better at a lot of things and be different? I think if you, you know, if you're the number one radio station, it gets listened to more than, you know, five through 10 in most cities. Uh, The number one ice cream, you know, gets selected more than five through 10, I bet, in most ice cream shops. And so if you can create a spread, you get a disproportionate amount of the referrals. I saw, oh gosh, I don't, I don't want to credit the wrong person, I, but I think it was somebody out of Purgeon. I think it was Mark who said somebody had a study that in every market, the top three firms on average get more than half of the new prospective clients. And I found that to be true. I don't know if it's true. I don't know what study it's based on, but I can tell in markets as our profile grows, I can see that happening. And so it's definitely an area where the the further ahead of the game you are, the more likely you are to be able to continue to succeed. And as it's getting more and more competitive, that's becoming more and more important. Interesting framing. So I like you've got a you got a lot of stuff there that that strikes me as 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 fascinating. The the I want to start actually with this last piece, this kind of idea of the the more ahead you are, the easier it is to succeed, which which to me at least essentially comes down to like wearing my sort of marketing and business development hat is, is brand is like when the firm gets to a certain size and you have a certain amount of resources to invest towards marketing and visibility and awareness, you know, you get to go in, as you put it, you get to go into markets, right? For most of ours, like you get to stand up a firm in a new city in a new location and immediately start building visibility with local media, with local COIs, with other organizations saying, you know, we're, we're this firm with tens of billions of dollars. And here's the story of, of what we do and what we offer and how it comes together and why what we do is, is great. And you've got all the implied credibility of the size of the firm and the depth of the firm. And what I'm presuming is just a pretty polished story because you've told it a bajillion times to people that you're working with. And that there is this effect that comes when a firm gets large enough at a certain size that you've got an ability to execute on brand in a way that the average advisory firm just flat out doesn't have the math and resources for and and probably won't for any foreseeable future. Well, I, I use the TripAdvisor example. Tomorrow, I'm going to go to Kerrville, Texas and, and Addison, Texas. And I usually don't plan where I'm going to eat or figure it out. TripAdvisor tells me where to eat, right? I mean, I'm basically looking for the collective due diligence of everybody else to find a place to eat where it will probably be good and I probably won't throw up, right? So if the if you've got a firm and, and you're bigger, uh, more people are going to feel comfortable. And if you think about the way a people choose a wealth manager, one, they want to do better, but two, there's a lot of fear in this decision, right? From all the way from, you know, someone's going to steal my money all the way up to, do these people really know what they're doing, Right. So if you have a firm that a lot of very affluent people are hiring, it just naturally gives you comfort. That's how we all make decisions. The story I tell my my team when we're in training about why it's so important to be good uh, in each market is, you know, I was looking to have somebody build a deck at my house once and I had three people come out and the one I hired was the one who pointed to a couple of neighbor's decks and said, I did those. 
And I knew one of those neighbors, and I knew that was the kind of person that was pretty smart, and it just gave me comfort by decision. It made my decision for me, right? So I think as you're bigger, you start to see opportunities you might not otherwise see. It's risky for a client to refer another client to you. It's risky for a very high net worth client to choose you. If I look at the the clients in our ultra affluent practice now, which is, you know, it's billions of dollars and it didn't exist a long time ago. We didn't have enough clients to segment it out as its own deal. Yesterday, there was somebody that was in our office had flown in from out of town. Net worth is between 250 and 350 million. If that person, and this guy just found us on his own, right? Not a referral from anyone. If this guy had somehow stumbled across us back when we were a $7 billion firm, would he have called us? I would think no. You know, I think the reason he's calling us is, hey, this is a firm with scale and expertise. They're clearly doing something right. I'm going to investigate, right? And he's not just talking to us. He's talking to Goldman Sachs. He's already at JP Morgan. I mean, he's examining his options, but we're we're only having the discussion because of the credibility that that comes up front from the size and scale and experience. And I don't think I don't think that's an invalid thing, by the way. There's no question that creative planning can do more for a client today than it could do three years ago when it was less than half the size or 10 years ago. That, that's not debatable. Anyone that works here would tell you it's a very, very, very different place than it was three years ago or 10 years ago. We just didn't have the scale. And as an example, our estate planning arm, we have it's a 40-person team. We used to just do wills and trusts. Well, now there's attorneys that just do trust settlement. There's attorneys that just do real estate or corporate and mergers and acquisitions, or just tax law, there's more places we can go for a client now than we could a long time ago. So when the client infers that there might be more breadth, there might be more depth, there might be more experience, this person might be able to really help me in a way that a Goldman or JP Morgan can't, they're actually right. Okay, There's something to it. And so I think that's a very, very big part of the perception of how things happen. And I think it's it's also based in reality. I also think people are smart enough to know the difference between a roll-up and a firm that did it organically, right? If you have $20 billion and $15 billion of it was acquisitions, I think you know most people in 30 seconds go, well, there is no proof that this offering is a good offering. There's no proof that this offering is something that attracts and retains clients or makes clients refer other people. All this is proof of is that someone bought it as a platform and started to buy other firms and put it on there and probably leverage it and going to sell it in two years. That's what it really proves. So I think it's a very different from a perspective of a client, a prospective client. I think they're going to look at it very differently. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, as you grow, it becomes a little easier to compete and see opportunities. Interesting. I, I, I To me, it is one of those things that we tend to underrate in the industry, this, this kind of raw impact of social proof in the face, particularly in the face of uncertainty, you know, when we don't know how to make a decision, but for example, I can't tell all these financial advisors apart. When we don't know how to make a decision, one of the biggest cues that we take is, well, what do other people do? Because at least if I'm standing with the herd, I'm probably safe, uh, right? It's sort of hardwired into our brains. The people who stand up from the herd are the ones that get picked off by the predators. And so, you know, in the face of uncertainty in a world of advisors where not only do we struggle to differentiate, consumers to struggle to differentiate us from each other. It's why the primary way a consumer finds an advisor is you, know, you go to a find an advisor website and you type in your zip code, right? Which means at the end of the day, most of us are, we don't differentiate on the depth of our planning services or our quality or our expertise or any of the rest. Clients find us because our 
zip code is most convenient to their home or office. Like that's how little they can tell us apart. Yeah, I would say though, people are a little more discerning than that. I agree that it's hard for them to figure it out, but they figured out a couple things. So McKinsey came out with a study. I was just looking at it this morning. It was in RIA Intel. They were referencing it. Now, I might not get the statistic perfect, but they were basically saying, you know, what we're seeing is the this millionaire next door, the people with a million up, they tend to be moving to independent advisors. So somehow the general public has figured out, I'm I'm probably better off with an independent advisor than a broker, which is why every year we see market share moving more and more from brokers to independents. But I mean, let's not kid ourselves about the progress that we've made, right? I mean, the, the brokerage world is, you know, a factor of thousands of percent bigger than creative planning, let alone any other RIA, right? So as you see these people start to go, well, I want to look at an independent firm. Well, now they go, okay, well, now I'm with a fiduciary and they have to act in my best, all of that stuff, but they still have to differentiate because there's lots of independent advisors. And so it's it's messy for the consumer and you just got to do all you can to provide as much value as you possibly can. So they see the value and when they sign on, they're happy enough to refer somebody else to you. Yeah, they're you know the the number that always the like the statistic that always blows me away is is still at this point even with all the shift to RAs and breakaways and the rest you know Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley combined like just the two of them that's only two of the four wirehouses Merrill and Morgan combined have more assets than all RIA custody at Schwab Fidelity and TD Ameritrade put together like all the RAs at all the big 3 custodians are still less than just Merrill and Morgan, never mind also UBS and Wells Fargo. The sheer size and magnitude of of big firms is still kind of astonishingly large. But as you noted, like, but you see this consumer preference emerging where every year a percent or two of market share bleeds from wirehouses to the to the independent channels. Right. I mean, I think it's all what you're comparing to. You know, at our annual meeting, we were going through a chart of uh, if you look at all the spaces, there's a big leader, whether it's private bank with Wells Fargo or it's the custodian like Fidelity, and you get to the the RIA space, it, there it really doesn't exist. I mean, you're referencing us as the the largest that, and I think it really depends how you look at it. You got to kick out the 401k firms and the hedge funds and all that, but the largest RIA, we're less than one percent of the independent space, and we're probably less than one several thousandth of percent of everything else, which just shows you how small, you know, this yeah, group is. Well, when Goldman Sachs bought United Capital for, you know, at, at almost 25 billion of AUM and three quarters of a billion dollars in cash for the deal, you know, you look at the press coverage for Goldman Sachs afterwards and their characterization is basically, you know, we bought this tiny wealth management startup thing. It's really kind of a minuscule business line for us, but we think we could actually grow it into something that has size. Well, I love like just this week, I there. yes, last week, the CEO of Morgan Stanley was on a call with analysts and he was asked about, you know, what about the advisor business? And he didn't even know that uh, RIAs were Custody it. Yeah, it's like, you know, oh, E Trade has an advisor business. I, mean, that's I, I guess how, we'll look into that. Right. So it just gives you an idea of the world we live in versus, you know, the reality of how much longer there is to go for all of the RAs out there, you know, in, with this uh, competition we've got going on. So, so take us back a moment to the, the origin story. Like, how did creative planning actually get founded? Like, what were you doing when you get started? And and did you have a vision of actually making this thing that's now been made? Was this the, what did you do at the start? And was this the vision? 
definitely definitely not planned out or you know we probably would have got here uh, quicker but you know when I started uh, I started as an advisor to other advisors so I I'd, I'd go to brokerage houses and insurance companies and and independent RIAs and from 98 to 04 creative planning was one of my client creative planning had been around since the early 80s and uh, it had been founded by three guys that owned an insurance agency and one of those guys died young one baby became disabled young and the other guy in his early 50s said hey peter you know I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do something else. I'm more the insurance guy. I wasn't the investment guy. And the investment team had left. And I had been taking care of Creative Planning's clients. There were only a few dozen of them from 98 to 04, while I was also taking care of clients at brokerage houses and other independent RIAs and everywhere else. And, and taking care of in this context, this was when you were doing estate planning work as an estate attorney and taking care of them in that context or or something else? That's how I had met them because I had done legal work for their clients just like I'd done for hundreds of other advisors in different settings. But when their team had left in the late 90s, they asked me to take over the actual planning and, and investment piece for them too. So that I did that while I was also still doing everything else. It was The difference was in 03, when I said, you know, in the following year in 04, I'm going to go ahead and have a firm that customizes portfolios, brings legal and tax in-house, includes planning in the process, all of that stuff. When I decided to do that, he said, you know what, I'm ready to retire. So why don't you just take over? You already know these clients. There's only a few dozen of them. Why don't you take over? And and that's how it got going. But the things that we had put in place then, conceptually, they're still the same. You know, we're we're still independent. We just have a lot of experience. We still customize portfolios. We just have access to a lot more investments we couldn't access back then. And we're still holistic. There's just a lot more things we can do when we say that than we could do back then. But there were some principles we put in place that I think were big keys to our success. And they were really kind of antithesis to everything you would read in a industry magazine or that you would hear an industry consultant say. And one of the things we said was, you know what, we're going to take every client and we're going to treat their portfolio differently. And we're also, but to do that, we're going to have to do a plan for them. And if we have to do a plan for them, well, we're going to include it at no cost. We're not going to charge a separate fee for the plan. Now, this, I mean, might not sound radical to you, but I can assure you in the mid-2000s, that was a radical idea. I mean, everyone was like, no one will value the plan if you don't charge for it. You shouldn't be giving away the plan and the plan and the investments are different and, and all of that stuff, right? And our attitude was, well... If we're really going to try to customize a portfolio and customize other solutions, you know, legal, tax, planning, well, we can't tell them it's an option to do the plan. And if we're going to make them do the plan, it should be included in the in the fees. Well, that became a big difference back then. It's obviously not a difference today, right? I mean, a lot of people are doing planning today. I remember when we got on the TD platform, we did free plans. Everybody went nuts, you know, like oh my God, here's this firm giving away a plan and then they're going to take the client through the planning process and they're not going to force the client to change their investments right away. And they'll even give them a couple quarters to figure out what they want to do with their investments. And you know, how are we supposed to compete with that? Well, today, you know, that's the norm, right? Like the norm today is if we look at our top five competitors on the platform, all of them now have a financial planning department. Most of them do the financial planning for free. Most of them have added ancillary services like creative. I mean, they had to. To compete, and I think the industry and the ultimately the cl- the clients, the consumers, are better off because of it. But this idea of a free plan was a big difference back then, and then the way that we managed money, I think, really was. And so, if you look at obviously, if you go to 
Vanguard, right? And you say, I want to be in your target date fund. They go, great, sell everything you have and put the money in the target date fund. And there are a lot of advisors that sell a strategy, right? They, they go, look, this is my small cap value strategy, or this is my momentum strategy, or this is my market timing strategy, or my dividend paying strategy. And the way you get into that strategy is you sell your stuff, pay your taxes, and you go into the strategy. Then there are advisors that have models. Some have five models, some have 250 models. And they go, look, we can't keep track of all your crap. We don't want the liability of it. We're going to sell everything. Would you come over? And we're going to put you in model number 187. And we never did that. We didn't do it in the beginning, and we don't do it today. So what we would basically do is we'd say, we're going to spend a few hours with the client up front. We're going to spend a few hours developing recommendations. We're going to spend a few hours delivering the recommendations to the client. And in that, we're going to look at the portfolio, and we're going to determine you know, what do we have in, have in bonds to meet their short-term needs. And in that particular situation, should it be individual bonds, which will go to our fixed income team, or bond funds? Should they be state-specific bonds given the tax bracket and where the municipal bond environment is? And then we go from there and go, well, what should we be including in equities? And what positions do we need to work around? If the person has $2 million in a mutual fund, we wouldn't normally buy because it's more expensive and creates more taxes, but 80% of its capital gains, we may make the decision to hold that fund and work around it. It might not be our favorite, you know, say, large-cap growth position, but we would reduce our large cap growth position and we would keep that one in there. If somebody had $3 million in Facebook stock, we could use an exchange fund to diversify it, not an exchange traded fund, but an exchange fund. We could send it to our options team if they had an exit price that they wanted to get out of in the future, but in the meantime, they wanted to earn income on it, or we might sell it, or we might hold it and work around it, or the client might decide on a combination of those things. And, and then some clients need alternative investments and some don't. And so you might have one person worth $30 million that has alternatives and one person worth $30 million that doesn't. A lot of people that show up here with a, a lar- large amount of money already have some alternatives. So if I've already got private equity, we don't recommend our private equity, but we might include something else, private real estate or pl- private lending. So if we had, we have a client event every year and there are thousands of clients come to that event. And if the client to the left turns to the client to the right, and says, what process did you go through at creative planning? They would all describe the same process, whether the client has $350 million here or whether the client has $500,000 here. They're going through the same process. But if they said, what do you own in your portfolio? They would not match. Okay, They would be different and maybe very substantially different. But if they said, what's creative's philosophy on investments, it would be the same. So we're also not like Morgan Stanley, where an office one could be a fixed income guy, and office two is a guy that believes in trading stocks for everybody, and option three is a guy who believes in only using regional stocks. We have a philosophy. I think it's pretty well known how we feel about investing. And what we're trying to do is take the client through the planning process and say, this is the philosophy we think makes, this is the are the investments we think that make the most sense for you within our philosophy, but because of your tax bracket and because of your time horizon and because of the tax consequences of some of the things you're coming to the table or because some of the things you're bringing are illiquid or because you work in a tech business and we don't want to overweight tech, here are all the adjustments we're making to your portfolio to make it do what you need it to do. So you could have somebody that has some money with our options team, some with our fixed income team, some with our alternatives, some with a combination, some with no bonds, but they would all know the philosophy. They know we don't market time. They know we believe in asset allocation and diversification. They know we believe in uh, keeping costs down and having part of the portfolio be passive. They know we don't believe in hedge funds. They know we believe in some alternatives. 
like private lending, private real estate, private equity, and some other things. They know what our biases are and our feelings are, but they know that we're taking into account what they're bringing to the table. And sometimes what they're bringing to the table isn't something we can't change for tax consequence consequences, but just something they like or don't like. Somebody might come to us and say, look, I agree with everything you're saying, but I don't want to own emerging markets. And we'd say, okay, you're the boss. Someone might come to us and say, I agree with all your advice, but I don't want to own alternative investments because I don't want to deal with the headaches or K1s or whatever. Fine. You're, you're the boss. Someone might say, I want to have more things in this asset class, or I just like this stock. And even though there's no tax consequence to sell it, I want you to hold it. We would work around that. So I think that upfront, that commitment to doing the plan without a separate cost and going through the effort to customize, that was very, very, very unique back then. And so when you put us in a anywhere, it, you know, in, on our own, we were growing very, very fast, but say you put us in the TD platform and the TD platform, other people aren't do planning. The few people that are, are charging a fee and they certainly didn't have as many people that were as credentialed as our firm was or, or as strong at planning as our firm was. And then we were not throwing people, selling everything and converting into a portfolio. And we would give them time to figure out, is that the right portfolio for them? That was very, very, very unique. And I think that's held up through today with the difference just being ex- experience, breadth, depth, and, and the different types of investment vehicles we can bring to clients. So with the sheer size and, and breadth and the number of advisors of the firm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering on the one end, when, when every client gets customized portfolios and, and they're all running different exceptions or preferences and not on standard models, how, how do you actually ensure that advisors across the firm are all doing something consistent when you can't just look at the portfolio to see if it's consistent because it won't be? And how do you just actually implement this systematically across $50 billion when every every client is different and, and you have to manage a bajillion different portfolios at, at your size and scale? Well, I think this is a great example. I mean, this is something that is an advantage and it's also tough to scale, right? I mean, one of the a lot of people don't want to do this because it's a lot of work, a lot of money, and a li- lot of liability. It, and all of those things are true, but it's also a differentiator. So if you're willing to take the liability and so on, it, it can make sense. I'll give you an example of how this goes wrong. You know, we had a client that came on board and he was working with an advisor in Texas and he had $2 million, I think it was, in one energy company that he worked for. And the advisor had set a meeting to build a plan and said, hey, even before we get to the recommendations meeting, you know, this plan doesn't work if this stock doesn't doesn't work out for you. I recommend we diversify this right now. We don't need to wait two weeks for the recommendations meeting. We should be selling the security. Client says no. The advisor says, okay, I'm going to email the client that I told him to email the client. Then they have the recommendations meeting. And in the recommendation, he goes, hey, you should sell this security. And the client says, no. Now, internally, we have reports that show us concentrated positions, cash positions. So all this is being monitored. We also have about 50 people that do nothing but trade separate from the advisors, right? So even the advisor can't go off reservation because there's a trader that knows everything that's going on and is going to know what stands out and so on and be touching base with the advisor. Well, after three, four recommendations to this client, you know, what we have a policy that look, if it's still here after two quarters and they're not following our advice uh, at all, it's, you know, we're, we're not working with the client, right? So that client can come over here. I'll give you a better example. We had a client had Apple stock, $13 million. He wants to think about our options strategy, our alternative strategy and so on. We do the plan for them. We deliver the recommendations. We'll hold Apple and whatever other stocks they have. But after two quarters, 
you know, if he's like, I'm not sure what I want to do. We're like, look, why don't you come back when, you know, when, when you're ready. And the reason is if I go back to that energy guy, what happened to that guy's energy stock was it wound up going down dramatically. And he had margined the account against our advice. He called uh, the custodian directly oh, after that. <laughs> not, not only concentrated, but concentrated with leverage just to make sure this hurts. That's right. Hmm. So what happens is he, his account blows up completely. He gets an attorney and the attorney says, well, creative planning, you're responsible. You know, you had the, you had the account. And now we wound up you know, winning that and, and, and paid nothing to the client. But the point was, you know, we're a fiduciary. We're advising the client. The reason that we wound up not having an issue there is because it was documented about seven or 10 different ways that we had told that client to diversify. But, you know, the typical RAA, they're not doing any of that, right? They're going, listen, we're selling this today. You're paying the taxes and it's going in this portfolio or you're not a client. Whereas our typical client comes to us and if they're at Facebook or Apple or Boeing or whatever, and they've got a bunch of stock, We'll wait to develop a strategy, and when they're ready to pull the trigger, we'll pull the trigger. We're patient, and we're not going to push the client into a model right away. And if they want to hold half their Boeing stock and diversify half of it, we're going to say uh, okay to that. And that's you know that's also resulted in a lot of questions around you know our AUM because I think it's pretty well known that that's how we manage money. I was going to say like, do you do you still bill on that? Do you not bill on that? Because there's a pressure for a lot of us advisors of like. Yeah, I understand the client wants to keep the position, but when I bill on an asset or management basis, they can, sometimes they can't even meet my minimums if they keep almost everything in something outside that uh, that they don't want to liquidate right now. So how do you handle that just from a, a business model perspective? Well, I guess from an AUM perspective, I just describe it this way. So on, on our ADV, you know, today we manage around $50 billion. I mean, You've got the coronavirus stuff happening. Who knows what it is today? But it's around $50 billion. All of the dollars on the ADV are, man, are managed build accounts, right? So let's just start with that to clarify that. Separate from that, about 4.5% of our overall assets are in unmanaged no-bill accounts. And that's the same whether it's inside the TD program or outside of the TD program. So all the clients, wherever they come from uh, or any program we're in, it's, it's about the same. It's around, it's a little less than 5%. So they don't go on the ADV, they're, and we, we will hold an unmanaged no-bill account in a separate account. And then we want to document a clear understanding with the client. Like, hey, we've recommended these things and you're not ready. Or some clients, they just have a sister account that they want to manage on their own, right? You've got a client that they have a million with us that they're managing, but they have $200,000 that for whatever reason, it's in 12 things that they never want to change or that they want to handle themselves, but they don't want to deal with separate reporting and all of that. We will leave that in a separate unmanaged no-bill account. And that winds up not on the ADV and winds up being a little less than 5% of the overall assets. But you have a risk with every account you hold, right? So you're making a decision as an advisor to make life easier for the client, to accommodate the client, to account for those investments with what you're doing. Of course, there's an easier path to manage those assets later too, right? I mean, so it's there's that as well because they're more likely to call you with questions around it uh, and so on. But it's, it's a business decision that's not as simple as it appears. And obviously, if you've got the relationship at some point, if the if the liquidity event does occur and they're otherwise happy and working with you, like we kind of know where this is going to end out. So, does that mean does does the firm still have some kind of asset minimums it takes to be a creative planning client? Will you work with anyone up and down the spectrum as long as there's a total net worth, even if it's going to be unmanaged no bill accounts? Because we know we're going to have a shot at it at the future. Like, how do you just how do you manage that from the business end of clients with a significant unbillable asset base. 
Well, I mean, we have, I mean, it, so it, it really depends on the situation, but we have a lot of ways to service clients. So, I mean, we have, most of our clients are what we call in our private client group that they've got around half a million or, or up. That's, you know, probably 30 plus billion of what we manage. There's a few hundred clients that make up, you know, a lot you know, of our assets under management as well that have 10 million, 25 million, 100 million and up. That's probably the fastest growing part of our practice asset wise. So it definitely is. Then we have an emerging wealth group that has people that have um, 50,000 to around 500,000. So we have three different ways to work with clients. That's that's latter group is only 2% of our assets and mainly family of existing clients, but also it's people that are on the right path that are starting out. But they don't naturally fit in those categories based on their assets. So I'll give you some extreme examples. We might have somebody come in here who's got a negative net worth and nothing to invest, but it's a married it's two married surgeons that are going to save 100,000 a year. We are not going to put them with the emerging wealth group and then move them. We want to move people as little as possible. They're going to work directly with the private client group because that's where we think they're going to end up quickly. We might have, and this is normally how the ultra-affluent practice works, is we'll have somebody come over. They might, We might be working for them for free for two plus quarters, sometimes longer. We had somebody that had a restaurant chain. We worked with a firm for free for a year and then because we knew he was going to recapitalize and, and have money to invest. Or we'll work with somebody who has... Is has an event. We had a bunch of people at a couple high-profile companies that we knew was was going to IPO and they were going to have investments. You know, we'll start them in the ultra-affluent group, so they're getting the legal and tax and planning advice that's commensurate with their situation. So it's not necessarily about where where they are; it's about what they need, which is usually tied to where they are, but not always. And so, so you'll handle them across the spectrum then with just different tiers and are, are these all still AUM tiers and AUM structures? You may work with clients for limited billing for a period of time because we're expecting that eventually we're going to work in a holistic relationship or do you start compartmentalizing fees, uh, like planning fees versus investment fee- fees as you start moving up the wealth scale where there's more illiquidity or you move down the wealth scale, where as you said, like they might have income, but not a lot of assets. All of our fees are asset based. So if you know if we've got somebody who's you know worth five hundred fifty million dollars but has a five hundred thousand dollar account, we're only billing on the five hundred thousand dollar account. It, it doesn't matter where you fall. That's how we're that's how we're doing things. So what about all the people out there? Uh, like I'm curious today, as you've noted, you know there was criticism then and now of. If you don't charge separately for the plan, people won't value it. All this discussion around commoditization of investments, uh, fee compression of the AUM model, some people calling for death of the AUM model, depending on where they are. How, how do you look at this of these discussions of still running? We do AUM fees. We don't charge separately for planning. Like, How do you respond to people who say clients won't value the plan if they don't pay for it? And how do you respond to people who say, you know, AUM fee compression, fee compression. Well, I think we're we're living proof that people can value the plan and not pay a separate fee for it. I mean, I, I think that the reason we are where we are is because not because we do the plan at no cost, but because the plan is valuable to the client. Okay, we educate them, we empower them. It's delivered by people that are credentialed and educated. It's thorough. That's why they value it because when they get the recommendations and they get it from the people that we have, they say, you know what. I'm going to follow these recommendations, and that's what creates the advocacy. Now, in terms of the AUM model, I look. I think that fee compression is coming, 
just like it has come everywhere else in the industry. And I, I know that we you want to touch on that later, but I, I would just tell you that I, I think the model is going to change and I think it's going to change substantially, you know, over time. So I, I am struck by just that it's like simple but uh powerful point that like the the clients don't value the plan because they pay for it. They value the plan because it's valuable from people who have knowledge and credentials and 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 the and the skill sets to back that. It is a trend that I've noticed broadly in the industry as well that the challenge that a lot of firms have that that don't charge separately for the planning is, is not that the client won't value the plan if you if the if the firm doesn't charge for it. It's that in some cases the firm doesn't really value the plan when the firm doesn't charge for it. It's easy to lose perspective on like, remind me again why we're paying for all these CFP certifications and other designations and master's degrees and a financial planning department. Or like if your revenue is all AUM, it's it's I think hard sometimes from the business management end to start viewing AUM related activities as revenue drivers and financial planning activities as as a cost center, or like a cost to be controlled because it doesn't it, it's not the thing you're charging for. And, you know, anytime something is a cost, you, as a business manager, you tend to naturally start minimizing it and managing it. And then you run the risk that you make the plan less valuable because you put less resources into it in the firm, not because the, the the client doesn't necessarily value it if they don't pay for it, but because it's hard from a business management and for the firm to keep the value focus on planning if they're not charging for it. Yeah, I, I will tell you that we get a lot of applicants here and I'm like, well, you know, you're at a big firm, you're doing planning. What What is it? What's the difference? And they're like, well, they don't really believe in the planning or they don't support the planning. And I think that what's happened is, well, we don't have fee compression of substance yet in this industry. We have value compression, right? You're You're charging the same fee, but you're having to do more. And I think a lot of folks, they're doing planning because they feel like, well, I have to now to, to compete, but it's, they don't, it's not in their DNA. It's in our DNA, right? So I don't know in the top 10 RIAs, how many of them are run by certified financial planning practitioners, but you know, I'm, I am one, right? And I'm an estate attorney and it's in the DNA of this firm to do that. I mean, the, the majority of our registered reps are certified financial planners, a huge majority of people that are in the wealth manager category here are certified financial planners and the people that are advising behind them, they're CPAs, attorneys, and so on. And so I think that we are incredibly committed to delivering advice that is actionable to our clients, not just trying to check a box so that somebody who's doing marketing on the front end can say, yeah, we do planning too, and we're going to include it. It's in the name of our company and it's in the DNA of of our organization. And I think our clients can feel that. I mean, when they go through our planning process and they compare it to where they came from, and most of our clients are coming from another advisor, you know, most of them go, well, this is a whole other level, you know, than what I'm used to getting. And I think that's, that's a big part of it is you've got to be committed to that. And the things we're talking about are expensive, right? The second you deal with every portfolio differently, instead of block trading some models, you you know, you're now increasing your liability and you're increasing your costs. You start to do financial planning without a separate cost and you invest very, very heavily in it so that you have your front line is are mostly planners and the people supporting them are planners. You've increased your liability and you've increased your cost, right? So you have to be very committed. That doesn't really fit the PE model, right? Where the majority of a firm is owned by a PE firm because they don't have the time for that commitment to pay off. You know, they've got three years 
they're not really interested in that. They're interested in saying, how can we say we do planning so that we can, you know, compete on, from a marketing perspective? And, you know, we're not going to be around more than three years to really fit, you know, see this anything other than the marketing angle pay off. So I do have to ask just one other question around the sort of investment end and, and having clients with with different portfolios. Do, do you get worried that clients will compare returns? Like, why is my neighbor's portfolio doing so much better than mine? Well, I think we're so engaged with the client. I mean, so the planning's ongoing. We don't do a plan, then put them in a portfolio. I mean, every time we place a trade, we email the client. The client comes in for overhauls of their plan uh, ongoing. Not, none of it's a one and done thing. So they know that the whole point of being at creative planning is that we're going to be figuring out where they are and where they're wanting to go all the time. And we're going to review it all the time. And we're going to adjust the portfolio to match that goal. So they know that, hey, if I own 30% bonds, but my neighbor owns 10, you know, our returns probably aren't going to be the same, but I know why I own 30% bonds. And so I think it actually discourages that because the client's educated and the client knows, you know, they know, to me, it's like a, a custom home builder versus a spec home builder. I'm not going to question, you know, why the staircases in my neighbor's house is one way versus mine. It's because I went through a process with an architect and a builder and I got exactly what I was supposed to get, Right. So I think that's an that's interesting, how they look that's at an interesting point that just, you know, when, when you've set the brand and expectation, everything we do here is custom, everyone kind of gets, or you're like, why is my neighbor's house look different than mine? Like, because you hired a custom home builder who built it for your specs and your neighbor likes different things. Like, that's not a complaint. We sort of expect, like, if you hire someone that does custom stuff for you, it doesn't look like everyone else's. If anything, that's not a that's not a, a, a negative or a drawback. Like that's literally a positive and the feature and the point. Like I got a thing that's different than my buddy. And the higher net worth, the more they value that. Okay. The more they appreciate that they're not going to be the same as somebody before or after them. And the more they appreciate the process that's going in to make sure that everything that's recommended to them in the portfolio is, is you know, the best that we can possibly, the best foot forward we can give them. So, so talk to us a bit about sort of changes in in what you do at the firm over this journey like I, I mean for most firms like your world changes just as you go from 100 million to to 500 million or a billion or 2 billion never mind you know 100 million to 50 billion as you guys have gone the the model still seems to be the same anchor and core like it's an asset center management fee you do planning bundled into that but you've got a strong planning focus that that was where you started and that's where you remain so as you view it, like what what's what's changed, what's stayed the same in wealth management world over the past fifteen years? Well, I mean, I can tell you here what's what a lot has changed. I mean, so in the beginning, there were just a handful of us, and I mean, the first few thousand wills and trusts that got done here, I did them right, or in the first whatever financial plans, me and Molly, who's now the vice president, we did them together. And then we started to have you know very great demand, and we started to hire as fast as we can. And I would say, you know, we were just trying to keep up with demand until about three years ago. We just couldn't you know, build out everything we needed to keep up with the inflow of clients. And about three years ago, we hit a tipping point. You know, and, and kind of the best evidence, you know, you asked in the beginning, did I see this happening? And the answer is no. And, I, and my employees believe that because there was one point in Kansas City where we went from being in one building to being in two, then three, then four, all in 18 months as we you know, hired to meet the demand. What we finally did was 
we hired enough people everywhere you know, to meet the demand. So we have all the wealth managers and planners and, and lawyers and attorneys in place, finally. We have a leadership structure in place across all the departments. We have a headquarters that's a third empty because we've got room for a lot more people. And we have a technology team that didn't exist three years ago that's now over 20 people that's built out and is building out, I think, best-in-class tech. So from a people, space, and technology standpoint, we can go to $100 billion and not really have to change a lot from where we are. That's very, very new here. Like a wealth manager who started six years ago and was in Florida, I mean, it was nonstop, right? He could be in Jacksonville one day and Naples the next, Miami the next. We were just trying to hire to meet the demand. Well, today that wealth man, I mean, there's a wealth, wealth manager in Jacksonville and there's a team in West Palm and there's one in Boca and there's people in Naples and Miami and the Panhandle and Tampa. I mean, it's no one's really, no one is getting on a plane in Florida, right? We consider it a failure if an advisor regularly has to get on a plane to see anybody because we've localized things. You know, we used to have one advisor in California. Now there's very large teams, you know, maybe 15 people, 20 people in San Diego and a bunch of people in Orange County and then LA and San Francisco and so on. So we've finally been able to make it where if that prospective client calls or our current clients, there's somebody localized to them, whether they're in Montana or Denver or California or Florida. That's a big, big, big change. So we've gone from a place where it was very hard for a wealth manager to keep up to a place where the wealth manager's staying in their backyard. They're getting to know clients whose kids go to the same schools work in the same communities, go to the same grocery store and everything else. They have a very large internal support team and all those teams have leaders. And so this, there was a turning point in the firm, I think three years ago, where we finally were able to get a enough, finally catch up and get ahead of the demand. And I think we finally have the framework now to get to the next level you know, from where we need to be. Whereas before it was just like, how do we, how do we meet this demand? And, and what was what was the turning point? Like, was there a catalyst or just suddenly like, oh, geez, I guess we're large enough. This is working now. Well, I think what happened is, I mean, we we just couldn't hire and train quickly enough. And look, we could have filled every seat in a week. I mean, that wasn't the issue. The issue was filling them with the right people. I, I'm a big believer, not just that you have to have people. We needed to have the right people. And if you want to have the, a good garden, you better start. Uh, with good seeds, right? And then you have to water it. And then along the way, you've got to pull the weeds before the weeds kill everything. And so we were so, and look, I've, I've definitely made mistakes in the, in the hiring plan. I've, you know, I've hired some people that were a complete disaster and it kind of can stay with you long after they're gone. But the vast majority of pe people that we've hired have been absolutely exceptional. And it's because we're delivering advice and advice comes from people you really don't want to compromise there. So, I mean, look, it was the decision was either compromise there or everyone was going to work hard while we got through it. And everyone worked hard while we got through it. You know, and for people that they didn't want to work that hard, well, I mean, they it was okay. They went to other firms and and I that's totally fantastic. But we just didn't want to compromise. We didn't want to say, well, we need a CPA or a JD or a CFP for this position, but let's compromise on that. Or we need somebody in this specific location, but let's compromise on that. Or this person didn't really pass the interview process, but you know we need somebody really bad. Let's compromise on that. We really tried to hold the bar, and you know, eventually we got where we needed to be. And in this world where we increasingly are talking about shortage of talent, 
shortage of next generation talent. How do you respond to the discussions around talent shortage? Is it is it real? Is it not real? Well, I think industry wide it's real, but I think it's not real if you're. I mean, I don't think you're going to have in your firm uh, a shortage talent. I don't think Ridholtz is going to have a shortage talent of talent, and I don't think creative planning is going to have one. People want to work in an environment where they're making a difference and where they have the opportunity to grow, right? And they have to believe in the mission. So if you've got a firm that's got a, an opportunity to grow and you are clear up front what the mission is, and you don't want to hire people that aren't philosophically aligned with you. I don't want to hire people that don't believe in planning. I don't want to hire people that don't believe in our investment philosophy. You know, you want to hire people that are aligned. It's, you really can't just say, oh, it's just business, get bodies in here. You can't do that. You have to have a philosophy that that your team embraces, or you can't expect to have the clients embrace it, right? And so I think if you're a good firm with talented people that's making a difference, you're not going to have a hard time finding people that are going to match up with you. Now, the problem is a lot of the industry is commoditized. So I do think industry-wide, we don't have enough people with these designations or coming out of school to meet the demand. I think just as it is with prospective clients, it will be with prospective employees. The, there will be firms that emerge with more of both at the expense of the other firms. It's an interesting way to frame it that you know, for firms that are struggling with, with differentiation, it's not just a, a challenge in differentiating to get incremental new clients who say, why you and not the other firm? It's equally relevant when you're trying to differentiate from prospective employees about why should they take the job at your firm and not somewhere else? The the more differentiated you are with your clients, with the clear mission of what you're doing and the value you provide, the easier it, it gets to find people who are willing to get excited about that mission and be a part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if I'm interviewing somebody, you know, and I and I say, hey, well, how do you feel about the way the way this works or that works? And you know, I get done investing. Well, you know, I'm really more of an active management guy, but I I would have I'm going to have no problem. Doing that. well, I don't want that person. You know, I mean, doesn't mean that he's not right. Maybe active management's going to wind up winning the next twenty years. I don't know, but it's not our philosophy, right? And so, even if the person's credentialed and smart and wonderful, it just you're starting out with something that's incongruent with the mission and the philosophy, and you kind of have to keep that out of the garden, right? If you want it to turn out the way you want it to turn out, and and how do you afford just this level of hiring and growth? I mean, I think for a lot of firms, the challenge as well is just there's both the difficulty of keeping ahead of the hiring curve from just the, the talent perspective of being able to find the people and get them on board and, and, and train them and get them in their client roles and all the things that we do in, in the execution of the business itself. But there's just the dollar cost of when you have to hire people before you need them and what that does to the, the margins, and the cash flow of the firm. So how do you manage this or how do you think about this from a a business management perspective of having the dollars to put into this kind of growth and hiring. Well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I had a, a call from a reporter a couple months ago who said, well, you know, you've got this person who called and said, you do planning for free and you let the clients leave their money the way it is while they get your recommendations and go through this whole process and then figure out when they're ready to pull the trigger. And so your firm's, you know, incredibly unprofitable. And then I had lunch with an advisor that runs one of the 10 largest RAs in the country a couple of weeks ago. And he goes, I heard that you guys have the best margins, you know, of any of the big firms in the, in the country. And so it's just interesting to see the interpretation of how people, you know, perceive it. And let me just tell you what the reality is. 
obviously, I'm not going to start by saying I don't care about money. I, obviously, I do. This is not a this is not a charitable foundation. We have a charitable foundation, but creative planning itself is not one. Right? We're a for profit business. Uh, I think my minority investor would would not want to hear me say, you know, that we don't care about profits. But from 2004 to now, that has not been my number one consideration. Not even not even my top three or four. I just don't care. Right? I, I already ha- have a long time ago, made enough money to do whatever it is that I want to do. I want to make a difference, right? So when I'm coming in, I'm not going, how do I maximize profits in three years or five years? I'm coming in and going, I want to build the very best thing I can possibly build for clients. And the number two I think about when I come in is, how can I make this the best place to possibly work? So when I find somebody who's great, they want to stay here. And the rest has historically for creative planning worked out just fine, right? The clients can feel that and they find it. And let's say that they don't for a while. I don't, fine. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to do whatever we've got to do to be the best. And the way I look at it now is whenever I'm, you know, done, and I hope that's not for several decades, I want the clients to look back and go, that's the right, I picked the right place. And I want, if we're at an annual meeting, for one employee to turn to the other and go, you know, of all my career decisions, this was the best one. I, I came to the right place. That's my number one and two goal. And my number three goal is to have a you know a profitable enterprise. But if you have that attitude, then it doesn't. You're totally willing to invest in all of these ancillary services that are going to make you better uh, to compete today. And I'm also going to be totally willing down the road to bring down fees when that time comes when I've got the scale to be able to do it, because I just have a different series of motivations driving me. Well, that's an interesting angle of getting large enough to just outright bring fees down and say, well, we'll never mind fee compression. We're going to, we're going to lead the competition on fees because we think we have enough scale to do it effectively. That's something we are trying to put ourselves in a position to be able to do. And so does that mean from a broad perspective, like, well, so as you put forth, like some people think your margins must be horrible and below average. Some, some <laughs> right. must think they're great and above average. So like, do the margins sit above average or below average? Well, there's, there are some things beyond the scope of this podcast, Michael. So I'm not going to share, I'm not going to share that. We're fine. I would, I mean, I don't think we would have an outside investor if prospects weren't good. So as we look at the, the business kind of from your role. I know one of the other things that a lot of people have talked about over the years is that most advisory firms, when they get to a certain size, the the founder, the leader, the CEO tends to move out of client-facing roles and, and into just full-time running the business. Uh, for a lot of practice management consultants, they specifically emphasize and espouse like you cannot grow your business past a certain point if you don't get out of the client facing role and into just focusing on leadership and management of the business full time. I know you still keep a world. We had talked about it on the the podcast a few years ago as well of keeping a handful of clients that you are directly involved with as an advisor. So I'm wondering, a just do, do you still do that after? Another fifteen billion dollars under management, and uh, like, what what does your typical week or time look like to be able to handle clients on top of a fifty billion dollar AUM business? Well, I, I do work directly with you know well over a hundred clients. I will never stop working with clients. I mean, when whenever my last day is, I am going to see a client that day, 
And I, I do, I mean, I understand the criticism. And, l- and let me just be clear with about everything that I'm saying today. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I'm just doing the, I'm doing the best I've got with what I know, right? I could be wrong, you know, on everything we're talking about. But the decisions that I've made thus far have worked out just fine for our clients and our employees and for me. And when I feel like when I'm sitting with a client, number one, I enjoy it, right? I started that way. That That's what I was doing is giving planning and money management and legal advice to clients. I enjoy doing that. So I think that's a big part of it, right? If I didn't enjoy doing it, different story. But second, when, I, when I'm doing our podcasts or I'm writing our letters, I am not having to wait for stuff to filter up to my ivory tower on what what people are thinking. I'm in the trenches, right? So I'm sitting with clients just like our wealth managers and planners and lawyers and CPAs are, and not just sometimes, every day, okay? Every day I'm with a client. So I'm sitting in a meeting with a client every day. The number two use of my time is sitting with employees about various things. And I get asked the question, well, where do you find the time to do that? Okay, the books say not to do that. Well, the book said, don't do financial planning at a separate cost either, right? Use model portfolios and all that other stuff. I think the the way I find that time is I'm not going to conferences. And I know you like, you know, you speak at a lot of those conferences. I've never seen you speak. You know, I've heard you a lot. I've, I've, seen I, I won't, I won't take it personally. You're, you're, you're clearly doing okay, even though you have not heard me give some suggestions. No, but, but you know what? I've been able to read your suggestions. And I've been able to listen to your suggestions when I'm walking the dog or on the treadmill, right? So I don't need to sacrifice the time that I'm with a client or an employee or my family to go to a conference. And I think that's you know that's kind of part of I think the issue with all the questions around you know creative and how we do it and profitability and all that stuff is I'm not at those conferences, right? So I'm not hanging out with the 25 other big firms that are going from one conference to another. Occasionally, I will go. I will go usually one day. I usually won't spend the night. And I'm usually because I'm meeting somebody at a car and I'm leaving, right? So to me, the it's where it's what brings the most value, I think, to the firm is for me to be with clients and employees and that I don't feel like I'm going to learn a lot at most conferences that's going to make me want to offset that, that I can't get somewhere else. I can't get my time with my clients and my employees somewhere else, but I can get the education that is at those events usually somewhere else. And then what is the the leadership team or structure look like that, that works alongside you? Obviously, it, it takes a lot of people to run any business, particularly one at the at the size of creative planning. So how does the leadership structure of the organization work at the top? Like, how do you actually manage the business as a business? So we've got every every group here has a department head. So there's a director of financial planning, there's a director of legal, there's a director of tax, there's a director of bill pay. And I mean, there's probably 12 or 13 of those running all of the different departments here. So each team has a leader. Uh, then we have a COO and a CIO, and we have a uh, Someone, our director of institutional runs our investment policy committee. So all of the teams have, you know, each other, and then they have a leader, and then we've got obviously the leadership uh, above that. But we're all player coaches, so it's not just me that still sees client. The head of our legal team, Seamus Smith, he sits with clients still. Candace Varner, who runs our tax team, she actually prepares tax returns and sits with clients still. We want all of our leaders knowing exactly what's involved so that as we start to propose new technology solutions or 
what software are we going to use or what type of people are we going to hire and what does the role look like today they're very in tune with it and i you know i know that that's not that's not how a lot of places do it and i'm not saying the way we're doing it is right but i'm saying it it's working for us you know and that and that's the attitude that we have about we want our leaders to be player coaches they obviously can't handle the same workload as somebody who's not leading but we want them in the game we want them to be to be knowledgeable about the intricacies of their of their job and i think it gives them the respect of their team too you know the head of planning the planners that go talk to him know he knows what he's doing because he was one of the best planners and you could do that across all of the rest of the of the teams here so so talk to us a little bit about the evolution of of growth for the firm like how have advisor programs changed over the years how has the growth profile of the firm changed over the years you you noted today you referrals from advisor custodians is only about a third of your assets i'm i'm assuming that was probably a higher percentage in the past and it, it kind of goes down as the base of the firm broadens in in the ways that you're getting clients so how has the the growth profile of of the firm changed over the years you know in, in the in the beginning it was all you know word of mouth and then estate planning then 401k then it was to your point disproportionately TD and then it was you know we, the Tony relationship and then we added things you look today it's less than a third TD and it's it's more than half a combination of things that have nothing to do with a strategic relationship i think what's happened is it's just greatly diversified you know we have over 30,000 clients and those 30,000 clients if you do right by them they're going to tell other people and I think we're doing right by them, and they're telling other people, and that's a very, very big part of what's going to help um, get us to the next level. I think the programs have changed a lot. You know, they they change every year anyway. They the custodians you know, change the way they decide how they're going to compensate their teams, or if they have an internal offering, and so on. And look, it's their clients; it's their right right to do whatever they want to do with all of that. But there's no question that most of those programs have contracted quite a bit. Uh, and you've got a big merger going on between TD and Schwab, and I'm sure that at some point that's going to take a lot of their time. I don't think, well, I know creative planning is not dependent on any one uh, relationship. We had a recent study by an outside consulting firm before our investor came in that they had commissioned, and it had our growth rate as double that of the typical firm independent of all of those channels. And I think that's the key is you've got to be able to make your clients become advocates. I think that's a very, very big piece. I mean, if you look at creative today, you know, what's the same? We're going to include a financial plan. We're hiring experienced, credentialed people. We value, you know, credentials, education, and experience. We are going to give comprehensive advice. We're going to do our best to implement it. We're going to customize portfolios and we're going to spend whatever it takes uh, to manage them correctly. But what's different is wealth managers today have far more support than they ever had. All of the team members now have a leader to go to. All of the team members are working on what much broader, more experienced teams. We have a lot more types of investments and planning solutions that we could offer clients. Uh, we have access to alternative investments we didn't have before. We've got things like bill pay we didn't have before. So I think from a client perspective or a team member perspective, there's just it's such a better place. And I think it was a good place three years ago and five years ago and 10 years ago, which is why we were growing with clients and, and employees. But it's such a better place with such a better offering today than it was in the past. And I think we're ready. We're locked and loaded to go to the, the next level. So I feel like for, well, virtually all advisory firms, we all go out there and say, like, 
we're going to serve our clients great and get referrals from from satisfied clients. In practice, not everyone gets those referrals. The growth doesn't happen. The referrals don't don't show up. What do you, what do you attribute that creative planning is able to get a different outcome and actually drive so much of that word of mouth referrals? Are you like a systematically ask every client firm? What's actually making the execution of that go so much better for you than everybody else? You know, we're not a systematically ask every client firm, and I. I- I think, frankly, that enough leaf flow comes into most advisors here. I mean, it's very different all over the country, but I think most advisors, you know, get enough leaf flow that they don't probably have that as top of mind as, frankly, I would like them to. And I think we're we're doing a lot of education in house on, hey, why go ahead and ask for referrals too? And sometimes, you know, some people are gonna will help you out, but only if if you ask them to introduce you to somebody. I would say that you know, it, there's a lot of different things that go into it. Some of which we've discussed today, and some of which are just you know kind of beyond the. We're, I'm still competing with these. For, you know, I'm not retiring tomorrow, and we kind of walk you through the Coca-Cola factory. But I'm not going to give you like the recipe to how to make Coca-Cola. But I think there are some things that we do that really create that advocacy. And so, yeah, you're right when you say, well, God, you know, a lot of people do planning now, and a lot of people do it without a separate cost, and maybe there are firms that customize and so on, but. I, I do think those firms are starting to see more referrals than their competitors too. And I, I think there's evidence of that. If you look at the top 10 firms in the independent space, a lot of them starting to look a lot like creative planning. And I think that you know that's a reaction to what we're doing in the marketplace. And so they figured some of it out and I, you know, I'll acknowledge that. And I think that what's going to get us to 100 billion is completely different than what got us to 50, which is why I think I'm more open than ever to having this conversation with you. Given all of that around the 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 powering of organic growth, the accelerating volume of clients coming in, the expanding reach, the new markets, the brand, all of that. And now suddenly in the past 12 months for the first time in 15 plus years, creative planning starting to do a number of acquisitions that have been announced and and kind of going down the inorganic growth path. So help us understand like what, what leads you to inorganic growth and especially what what leads you there now when it seems like organic growth is already going just fine so i think i mean organic growth are the best three years of organic growth we've ever had were the last three years and i think that you know that was our our leadership and our infrastructure and our way of doing things and me being you know more engaged than ever with the wealth managers you know drove a lot of that and i think our organic growth in the next three years will be better than it was in the last three so to me this Acquisitions is not a replacement uh, to organic growth, but more a complement. And my attitude had always been: I, I am not a fan of what I call the Franken firm, which is you know twenty-five firms put together to create a twenty-billion-dollar firm. I mean, everyone's doing something a little bit different. There have been compromises along the way. You're running different software programs. You know, it's just creating fake titles and all the stuff that goes into all of that. You know, I. Was not I'm not a fan of that. I'm also not a fan of acquiring, you know, something and just plugging it in and just magically that's part of the culture. Uh, whether it's a tax firm or a trust company or anything else. So we built everything. Okay, we built our trust company, you know, from nothing, and we built the tax arm from nothing and the legal arm from nothing, and and so on. And so we know how we want to do it, and we have the people that we want to lead it, and we have the process in place and the technology and everything else. And then we went and built out the teams, and then we went and got the clients. So now if we acquire a firm, and the first one was you know, kind of an accidental happening, and I've spoken with it about it before, but I'll, I'll be brief here. 
the Johnson group, the father's son came to visit me, kind of insisted on coming to Kansas City. We told him we didn't do acquisitions. We met him. Anyway, long story short, we wound up acquiring the firm. I was very impressed with them. They used the same custodians. They had the same investment philosophy. They were financial planning led. They did the financial planning without separate cost. I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, they, the people were exactly like our people who would have hired them had they walked in. And you know, it was a, it was four hundred something million. And I, I think today there are you know are six people in that group. And we folded them in. And it was the first one, so it was bumpy. But even for being bumpy, it was pretty seamless. And you know, we basically said, you know, we in that month, probably grew that much organically anyway, right? And so adding that firm where these people were already clients, we didn't have to onboard them and all the advisors were already in place. We just had to train them from doing planning their way into our way and centralizing all the processes. It went so smoothly. And that was in Minneapolis. And what we found is, you know, we were managing four or 500 million in Minneapolis. They were managing four to 500 million. All of a sudden, we're a billion dollar player in Minneapolis and we're starting to get in the conversation to be in those top firms, right? So to me, we can add firms now, but there are a lot of boxes that need to be checked. I mean, we we want people, we're not going to have firms that don't share our investment philosophy. We're not going to work with firms that aren't planning led. We're not going to have firms that run on different software systems or have different leadership, none of that, right? So it's got to be somebody who's really like-minded and wants to be you know, part of the mission of becoming that independent firm that really sets the tone nationally, what wealth management should look like. I think if you look at the independent space, a lot of independent firms have copied the creative model, but the brokerage firm hasn't even, brokerage world hasn't even noticed, right? We're not even, we're not a blip on their radar. We're not even on their radar. We want to be a blip on the radar. We want to be there and we want to make them notice and we want to see them change and become a little bit like us. And to me, we're small everywhere. So if a firm checks all those boxes, we're very interested in having the conversation. And after the Johnson Group happened, you know, we had uh, other folks, same thing, same investment philosophy, planning-led leaders that I personally connected with that had teams that matched us culturally. It was Susan with Stratford Consulting in Dallas, Wes and Mark with Optifor in the D.C. metro area, Paula Hogan and Clint in uh, Milwaukee. And it just was the kind of two good to be true setups and and we made those acquisitions. I think as we look at it, we don't have an acquisition team in place. Like we don't have people out looking for us. We don't have anyone in-house dedicated to it. It really is they kind of call us or email us or maybe they've hired a banker and that banker calls us or emails us and they have a conversation with someone here and then they have a conversation with me. And if we can go through all those boxes and check them, we meet in person. And then if that goes well, I go meet them at their place. And if that goes well, then we work it out. That's happened a lot lately. And I think it's going to, you're going to see a lot more transactions happen in the second half of this year as we've been approached by over 30, 40 firms, of which, you know, there's a good handful. I think uh, we're going to wind up making an offer to and, and having them come on board. And in all cases, it will make us more competitive in those various cities, but they will be coming into the creative way of doing things, which they already greatly match. And what I found is those, you know, when those sellers, they're looking basically what's the best place for their clients, what's the best place for their team, and what's the best, you know, where's the best economic outcome they can get. And I think when they look at their clients, they see in creative a firm that already matches them philosophically. So they 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 want that for their clients, but they see they can maybe do more for their clients here than they could do on their own, that they might be able to gain the confidence of the bigger potential clients 
more here than they could on their own, that we're a proven model for attracting and retaining clients. So they're not really guessing. They know that we're you know, majority owned by me, that we're not selling in two or three years. Uh, so I think when they look at it from a client perspective, they like that. From an advisor perspective, the advisors want the things we talked about before. They want to be a part of something uh, that they believe in, and they want to see a growth opportunity. And advisors here have the opportunity to grow, so they see that. And then it beca- comes to economics. We don't always win there, but we're usually in, in the game enough that we're, we'll be the ones to make that you know that deal happen. So then talk to us about the other one. That's why you've started buying. What what led you to also be selling and putting a, a a piece of creative equity on the table for a private equity firm, particularly since as you as you noted earlier, not not necessarily a fan of PE firms that have different time horizons than your than your long term time horizon for growth. So what what triggered putting a, a a PE firm onto the cap table and and why General Atlantic? So I have a couple different things. I mean, I think one, when we moved into this new building, I've got an office and it overlooks a parking lot and the parking lot has hundreds and hundreds of cars in it, right? So I'm I'm looking at that every day. It became more of a reality. I remember talking to a couple advisors here when we first moved in. That was the most noticeable thing for me. And the other building, first of all, we've been spread out into four buildings and my car, my office wasn't near the parking lot. And now it is. And when we sit with clients, and again, I'm sitting with clients every day, we, we help them work towards their goals. But one of the things we ask is, well, what could go wrong? And how do we prepare you so that your goals aren't compromised if you go wrong? And you know, the, you basically figure out, well, look, you can invest in, you want to make this energy bet, great. You want to buy a ranch, great. You want to invest in that, that venture capital thing, bet, great. But let's have something over here that if everything goes wrong, you're going to be okay. Well, when we looked at creative, we invested in the tech, we invested in the building, we had, in the headquarters. We, had, we built over the last five years. We moved into 26 you know, physical offices. We tripled our workforce. We did all those things. We said, you know, we have a clear path to grow and get to 100 billion. Now, what could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is tech bubble, 9-11, You know, the market is going to go down a lot at some point, and we never know when that's going to be or why. I mean, it might not be 10 years from now. It might be tomorrow. But it might not last six weeks. It might last four years, right? And if you look at the bigger firms, when that happens, what do they do? They nat- they just let people go, right? They, a lot of them do it in anticipation of. You saw when interest rates were dropping last year, a lot of the brokerage houses, custodians said, you know what? We think our earnings are going to be down. We're just going to start firing people now. I never want to do that. Like I would like to, whenever my time is up and I'm not doing this anymore, I would like to have been looked back and said, I never, ever terminated anybody based on economics, uh, about the economic environment. I want to be in a position to hire the best people in that environment. I want to be in a position to grow. That's part one of it. Part two of it is I think valuations are insanely high across the board. You know, whether someone has a $300 million firm or someone has a $50 billion firm. What drives valuations is a combination of things. One, you have to be an economic expansion, right? Check. You need to have a general bull market that corresponds with that. Check. You need to have a bunch of money in the private equity space to compete with the other buyers. Check. You need to have uh, low interest rates because they borrow to buy, just like with real estate. Check. Right? I mean, like you go through all of that stuff. That's you're checking all the boxes. Is all of this going to stay this way five years from now? I mean, is it? Are interest rates going to be this low? Will we still be in a bull market? Will we be in an economic expansion? Will there still be a record amount of money sitting in PE? The answer to that is not yes or no. It's I don't know. 
right? So if I don't know, and I think valuations are very high, and I want to ensure the security of everything for forever, you know, you sell a minority non-controlling stake. And and look, I think that's that's to me that to an outsider should be the proof that I'm not going anywhere because you you don't you don't get full value when you sell a minority stake because obviously the buyer doesn't have control, right? They're betting on you and your decision making, and so there's a little bit of a discount that comes into play there. And so that that was the reason. Now, why General Atlantic? You know, a lot of the clients in the ultra affluent practice, the way they got here was selling their businesses, and a lot of them got there by selling to private equity. So I deal with a lot of clients that have a lot of money, and they got that from private equity. And I have at least four clients that had sold to General Atlantic. And so I knew what their experience was like, and I had heard from them what um, that team was like. And so I, you know, I got to know the folks there and, and really liked them and respected them. And you know, I talked to them for a long time, and I waited until uh, I thought we were at the point where it made sense. And then we did the we did that uh, minority stake. So what comes next? Where where's creative planning going from here? Well, I think that part of it is, you know, we can the best laid plans, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, we're so at the mercy of a lot of things, the markets and competitive forces and so on. I think where we go next is, you know, dependent on the industry. I think the industry is going to continue to consolidate. I think E-Trade going to Morgan Stanley, TD Ameritrade going to Schwab. All this stuff is happening at breakneck speed. You know, it's, I've not had that long of a career and I saw mutual fund fee commissions go away, then mutual fund fees go away, then ETFs come out, then ETF fees went down. Now they're zero at Fidelity and and close to zero at a lot of other places. And then I saw trading commissions at custodians go from whatever to eight to five to zero. And the next place that's happening is here. And I think that we don't see it yet because no one's got the scale. That we don't have the technology. We don't just have the ability yet to do it, but it's coming. And I want creative planning to be on the front lines of that, uh, able to go into that strong and maybe even lead the way for how that looks. Um, we're on a mission to become a national brand and to have the brokerage industry notice us maybe the way that some of the independent space has. And you know, I would consider that the ultimate legacy. I don't think Bogle's legacy is Vanguard. I think it's in the, that everyone uh, has uh, does passive investing now. You know, I'm not certainly not comparing myself to him, but I would say Schwab's legacy, his legacy might not just be Schwab. It might be the whole model that led to Scott Trade and E Trade and TD Ameritrade and, and so on. I think that we we want to build something great here. We want to be able to you know look back and say we did it the right way. We put a lot of people in a better space than they were before. Uh, we want our clients, you know, to go. You know what? My goals happened, and and I got there. I slept better at night, and I felt like I was in the right place because I hired creative planning. That we want to do that for our clients and our employees. And then I think our other goal of of you know doubling in size from here. You know, we doubled the last three years. We doubled three years before that. I think it's very very attainable. I mean, there's a little bit different ways we're going to get from where we are now to to a hundred than just what we did in the past in acquisitions and we've got a plan in place and and Michael when I get to 100 I'll come on here and I'll tell you how we did it. Well as we wrap up Peter this is a a podcast around success one of the themes we always talk about is just how the word success means different things to different people. So as you're crossing a 50 billion dollar threshold <laughs> pushing for 100 billion in the next 3 years you certainly want everyone anyone would call a very objectively successful business. How do you define success for yourself? At this point, well, I would say the primary things that have to do with success have nothing to do with with business. I mean, they're 
really, if you, to me, when I look at somebody and look at their success level, I'm looking at their family and their friends and what their life is like, you know, outside of work. I don't think that's what your question is, but that's definitely how I see it. It's the reason that on average, I'll only travel one day a week. And in a, over the course of the year, I'll spend the night away from home for work 10 times max. I, I, I would, that would be the number one thing. Now, if you're saying within a business perspective, to me, it's not enough to be liked internally and it's not enough to win. To me, you're successful if you got your team to win the Super Bowl and the next year you get your team to win the Super Bowl and so on, but the team would want, the players would want to come play for you again, right? It's, you need both. And I think if you have both of those things, then I think that's the definition of professional success. Well, very cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and sharing the journey. And congratulations on a, a truly incredible milestone at $50 billion. I appreciate that, Michael. And congratulations to you on all you've done. You've been a great source of education and, I think, inspiration for a lot of us to keep our game up from the subject matter uh, standpoint. And so keep fighting the good fight. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.